two words. Ted Bundy. Those those are absolutely two words. <laughs> um, okay, so there's a new documentary that came out on Amazon Prime. It's an Amazon original. And I will straight up say, reviewing it right now, also a little bit of spoilers if you haven't watched it yet. It's been out a couple weeks. Um, favorite documentary that's ever been done on him. And you want to know why? Yes. They finally are not talking about him. It's not about him. It's not about his perspective. It is about the women in his life who were affected and all the women who were affected by the fucking crazy shit he did. And specifically, there's a big portion of the documentary that's about Elizabeth Kendall, um, Liz, who was his longtime girlfriend who was with him for like six years or so, like before the murders and after. And it's her perspective on it. And it is so refreshing to to focus on the victims. I just, I was so engrossed in this. It was like a five episode um, documentary and all throughout it, it's just the women's perspective. And like they even say in the trailer, it's like, you've heard the story over and over from a man's perspective. Here it is from a woman's, like the people who were actually affected by him, people he was in relationships with, friends and families of his female victims, all of it. Oh, I love that because I, for the most part, do not like 99% of Ted Bundy documentaries that I've seen because they all are so focused on him and what he's doing and all like, like he, he is the main character in all of it. Yeah. And I think especially um, with the one that just came out on Netflix with like Zac Efron, it's not a documentary, but, but like all of that, especially recently, it's been so much focused on him. And I'm like, we get it. He's this like fucked up manipulative guy. I'm good. And so the fact that this one like really goes in on the victims. Okay, I might actually watch this one. I really think you would enjoy it. And like, I know with like the Ted Bundy tapes and then the movie with Zac Efron, the the goal, at least from what I'm I see from it is trying to show how he was like the guy next door. Like he was just, you would have never expected this. He was really sophisticated, polite, put together, cute. And that while all of that is still true in this new Mm -hmm. Amazon one, it's called Ted Bundy falling for a killer. So while that is all true, instead of hearing like this explanation of like, whoa, how could some guy like this do that? It's the perspective of Liz where she's like, how the fuck did I fall for this? Also makes me like really, really okay with being single. Not gonna lie. Because <laughs> she was like single mom, moved to Seattle to start her life over. Her and her daughter got a job. And this is happening, you know, in the 70s when women's rights are becoming a thing. Like women are gaining rights to birth control, to abortion, and like, you know, some of the stuff that's being taken away now. All I'm gonna say about that. But then she meets this guy and he's everything. He fits the puzzle. He like gets along with her daughter. He's like that missing piece. And it's one of those things as a single person, I'm not a mom, but it's like, oh my gosh, like that missing piece of what she, you know, her puzzle that she thought that he fit Mm -hmm. that piece. Obviously he did not, but like they were together for like four years before anything started happening. And so God, the psychological trauma 
that is interwoven in here. And then also Molly, her daughter, is in this documentary as well. And like, Ted Bunny fucking helped raise her. So I I just want to say, if you feel like you know everything about Ted Bundy, you don't. Please watch this documentary. I learned so much that I didn't know because it's coming from the perspective of a lot of people who have never spoken out. Um, Mm -hmm. I know Liz has a book, and I think that's what a lot of this is based on. I mean, obviously, it's her life. But holy shit, it's so good. I cried multiple times. I just felt so differently about this documentary than any others that I literally wanted to open this episode up with it and recommend you have got to go watch it. You okay. and listeners. <laughs> I mean, um, how long is it? You said it was like five episodes? Yeah, so about five hours. It's a little less than. Okay. But That's not bad. Easily done in a nice. weekend. Yeah. Well, with that, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. I guess I have a documentary on my list to watch. Your ever-growing list of things. Although this one, it feels like maybe you'll actually watch in like a few months. Like six. Maybe. You've got a year. You've got a year. Okay. Okay. (laughs) We'll see. Because documentaries are, you know, either I absolutely will watch them, binge them and stuff, or like never look at them. So we'll see. I give it a solid, like a 61% chance I'll watch it this year. I mean, that's over 50%. So if if it yeah. was like a disease and that was your survival rate, it's a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah. Also a large percentage that you won't do it or like that you won't live if we're going the same scenario. So that's pretty dark. Sorry. I mean, if it was a disease, I still would be getting my like arrears in order and all that. <laughs> but, you know. Um. Well, so guys... Go check out Patreon. We've got lots of murder mini episodes. We're going to be recording one after this, um, which my case, whoa, dude, I can't wait to share it with you. Um, Uh, Same. (laughs) So if you are interested in getting more content, um, essentially our murder minis are shorter episodes. They're still phenomenal cases, crazy cases, super fucked up stuff, but maybe the case wasn't long enough for a full episode. So you know what? Murder mini. So hop on over there. There's like 40 of them. And also there's opportunities for you to direct an episode, suggest wine for us. There's a whole Patreon community. So be sure to check that out. Absolutely. Also, if you haven't, make sure to subscribe to us on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on. That way you can get notified every time we have a new episode and it'll be right there ready for you to hop in. So last week was a really interesting episode because we talked about local serial killers and it it was a tie. We had a draw. We haven't had a draw in a mm-hmm. while. But I think what made it very interesting is we were each like, no, yours was more intense. No, yours was more intense. And that's not normal for us. Normally we're like, no, 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 no. Listen, I won. Okay, I won. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're both like really defensive of whose was more intense. And so I just, I liked last week being that totally opposite perspective. (laughs) But because of that, we have a draw. And when it's a draw, it's a survivor episode. And oh God, mine is fucked up. So uh, buckle your seatbelt. Same. And it's interesting that you said buckle your seatbelt because... uh... That's uh, that's going to be an important line in my case. Oh, shit. Also, always buckle your seatbelt. I mean, yeah, just everyone do that in general. Um. Okay. Before we get into our cases, let's open our wines. So what wine did you pick? 
So the wine that I'm drinking today, it's a little different for me, but I was feeling, I just, I wanted a nice white wine this weekend. So I'm going to be drinking the 2018 Caposaldo Pinot Grigio from Della Venezi, Italy. Ew, Pinot Grigio. Venezi. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't mind Pinot Grigio. I know it is definitely not your favorite. <laughs> um, as far as white wines go, I do generally prefer Sauvignon Blancs above Pinot Grigio. But yeah. sometimes I want a white wine that has just a little more body than a Sauvignon Blanc. And my ass isn't going for a shard. So <laughs> that's when I hit up the Pinot Grigio aisle. Well, and I don't, I mean, it's, I, I rarely choose a Pinot Grigio. As you know, as all of our listeners know, I think I've picked like one for this entire podcast. But I've had a couple that I like. It's just not, I don't love them. And if I don't love it, I'm not going to drink it. I'm not going to buy it. So. Fair point. But tell me about the one you picked, because at least you got, like, a nice Italian one. Uh, True. Yeah. If I go Pinot Grigio, I'm going to at least try to get one that I like and sounds fun and interesting. So this is from uh, Italy's Della Venezzi region, and that's in the northern part of Italy. And it's a very well-known region for uh, Pinot Grigio grapes. They grow really well there. There's a lot of, like, rich minerals in the ground there's some like volcanic rock and some clay soil that really helps these grapes like get an extra fun punch of flavor and minerality Ooh, nice this pinot grigio in particular it has a very dry crisp and vibrant texture it's pretty medium bodied and it has this delicate aroma of apples and peaches and then in your mouth the palate is these acacia blossoms and almonds and then some of that like citrus kind of apple flavor. I know apple's not a citrus, but I feel like <laughs> when wine is like it's citrusy, green apple is always like the next comma after. Yeah. But again, the texture is very clean, crisp and vibrant. And it pairs very well with poultry, pork, fish, seafood, pasta dishes with, like, basil pesto and some delicate cheeses, which I'm like, oh, my God. Y'all, pesto is up there top three meals. Like, my, uh, I don't know. Really? Death day meal. Uh, what? You know, that's, that's a common phrase. That's how it's normally termed. Your last um, meal. Yeah, there we go. Last meal, death day meal, all the same. <laughs> um, I want some pesto pasta with like some fresh parm on top. God. Uh, pesto is really good. Have you ever made your own? Yes. And it's not hard, actually. No, it's not. It's pretty easy. Um, and I used to have a friend who worked in an Italian restaurant. And when I'd come in to like just hang out with her, I'd always wind up helping her clothes roll silverware and all that stuff and so because i was helping and didn't work there they would always in the back make me a bowl of pesto pasta but they would like customize it and do like half pesto half alfredo and mix it so it was like a creamy pesto y'all i got fat <laughs> but at least you enjoyed it it was so good uh, oh my god but yeah this wine um it has a screw cap which is always nice and it has the like from Italy, like, import custom sticker on it, the DOC thing a thing, which is always, you know, reassuring. It is. It's also a cute bottle. It is. Yeah. It's just kind of, you know, it looks like something y'all would see in, like, the papyrus paper store. If y'all have those around you, um, it's like a, like a bougie hallmark, basically, for cards and stuff. 
But yeah, it's this nice white label with like gold accents and it has the nice cursive. Did you know Papyrus is actually going out of business? They're closing all their stores. Oh, well, okay. Well, that's not going to be a relevant reference for y'all <laughs> soon. So maybe. Um, looks lovely and light. Ooh, it is. Well, smells and looks. <laughs> I haven't tasted it yet is all I'm trying to say. Ooh, yeah. Definitely smells very fruity, very apple and peach. Yeah. I'm excited and I want to hear what wine you're going to drink tonight. I'm definitely a fan of uh, white wines that have peach notes, so you'll have to tell me if you taste those. Yeah. So the wine I picked, I went classic Brittany. It's the 2018 Le Charme du Roy Bordeaux from France. You know, Bordeaux, wonderful, delicious. I love my Bordeaux. And the Bordeaux region is really ideal for ripening grapes. That's why you hear about it all the time. And so this wine in particular has aromas of some ripe red fruits that are followed by a fruity palate that's very balanced. It's a full and dense bodied wine with polished tannins, and it's mostly Merlot-based. You also get a little bit of a flavor of black fruit, licorice, and spice. And it really does go best with like seared duck, a steak, or even lamb. So some of your heavier meats or like mm. uh, funky cheeses like blue cheese. This one pairs really, really well with that. It's, again, a little bit up there. It's a $23 bottle. And I honestly can't share anything about the winery because I don't know it. Um, it's, it's one of those partnerships where what's on the label isn't necessarily the vineyard that it's from. And it's like, you know, the winemaker makes a deal with whoever's buying the wine that they'll sell it for, you know, they can sell it for a lower price as long as they don't identify the source. And so what I did read is that the winemaker would normally be selling this wine for about $75 a bottle. Whoa. So when you think of that and you think of it being 23 it is a fantastic deal. So it's a very like award-winning wine, but it honestly drives me kind of crazy that I don't know where the wine was sourced. I know Bordeaux and I'm like, cool, big region, lots of great wine. Thanks. I don't even know yeah. what, what all the grapes are in it, except that it's mostly Merlot. I'm going to guess there's probably huh. some Cab and some Cab Franc. You know, Bordeaux generally have like five or so different type of varietals. So there's no mm -hmm. telling, but Merlot heavy. Oh, also to note, mine was 10 bucks. so... Nice. Good price level. Mine has a cork, so regular opening. So my cat, Willow, is straight up sitting on the desk right now, so pretty sure y'all will get to hear her at some point. <laughs> In tonight's episode, because she likes being the center of attention, she's actually sunning herself under the lamp right now. She really does like being the center of attention. My children all leave the room when we start recording. I feel like you see Willow every week now. Every time we record, she's like immediately, like I sit down at my desk and she's like, hey, how's it going? I know. She wants to be a part of it. She is literally just waiting on me to extend an offer for her to be a guest speaker. She says she has a really good case. I think I talked about that before. Anyway, mm -hmm. this smells spicy. Not exactly what I was picturing. I was imagining I was going to smell more fruit. 
but it's very tobacco-y and spicy. So that probably means it's going to taste fruity, which I mean, that doesn't surprise me, especially with it being heavy on Merlot um, and like cabs and stuff. And it's got the red fruits, the black flute fruit flutes. <laughs> There's mm-hmm. a band inside this wine. Um, it's actually <laughs> flute heavy. And um, wow, that, you know, I, I don't even think I've ever seen a band that has more flutes than others. So that's, you know, that's intense. Flute band, flute band wine. So I think we should try our wines. I agree. Well, cheers. Cheers. Oh my god, that is so smooth and amazing. Wow. Mm, Mine is not what I expected, and in a good way. Okay, good, because I saw your face and I I couldn't read it. I couldn't tell if it was a like, oh, yep, that's what I thought it'd be, or like a, what's this? Oh. It, it was the latter. So it really, the best way I can describe it is if a French Sauvignon Blanc was heavier bodied. That's how I'm feeling about this. It still has those like bright citrus notes, but it has more weight to it. And even in the, um, you know, when you have a dry Sauvignon Blanc, but when it first hits your tongue, it's so bursting with the fruit flavors that you're like, for a half second, wait, is this kind of sweet? And then when yeah. you start tasting it, you're like, oh, no, it's dry. It's just, you know, really popping. That's that's this. So I'm surprised. I Again, Pinot Grigio is uh, never towards the top of my list, but this is a great one. I actually kind of want to try that one now, so I may go try to find it, especially for 10 bucks. I should give some more Pinot Grigios a try. Yes. But this Bordeaux, goddamn, y'all, it is delicious. Um, it is super smooth. I'm tasting a lot of the licorice and spice and tobacco with more of like these red and black fruits, not really blue fruits. There's no, you know how blueberries are um, heavy and like sweeter? I'm not getting that. I don't have the okay. sweetness. There's a little bit more of that tart type red and black fruit, like blackberries and cherries. But it interlaces with that, um, not smoky, but the spiciness and the tobacco and extremely smooth. Like it was like butter going down my throat, but not oaked. I know that sounded weird. That was a bad <laughs> example. But no, I know what you mean. That sounds wonderful. It's phenomenal so uh don't mind me while i'm over here drinking this really fast because it's really good except i shouldn't i should savor it a little bit more but i mean damn it's good i would say this is one of the better bordeaux that i've had i drink a lot of bordeaux really and this one's up there which i mean there's one at trader joe's that's like seven dollars that is phenomenal i actually had that the other night and because i wanted to kind of mentally compare it to this and i think i've done it on the podcast like a way long ago maybe in the 20 like the 20s but this one is it's better it's smooth i mean it better be if the dude tries to sell it for 75 bucks i better be blown away but i only got it for 25 23 so yeah well that's what i was gonna say is like if it's a secret $75 bottle it better be one of the best ones you've ever had exactly um but yeah y'all go see if you can find the Le Charme de Roy Bordeaux fantastic highly recommend all right well we've got our wine open and we're drinking it so tell me about your case 
Who is your okay. survivor and what crazy shit did they survive? So my case is that of Jesse. And it is from an episode of I Survived. It was season two, episode 13. So it aired back in like 2009. And then I also got some more information from an article in the Beaumont Enterprise. So this all takes place in April of 1983 in Pampa, Texas, which... You always pick in the Texas ones. Always. Yep, and Pampa, we know exactly where that is. Yeah, we do. Isn't it in the uh, panhandle? Yep. And it's like way up there. Yeah. So, Jesse, he is driving in a blizzard and he's on his way to Chicago. I think it was for like a work thing. And the episode kept describing that he was in the Texas Badlands. What? And I'm like, okay, (laughs) our entire family is from the Texas panhandle. I have never heard this area called the Texas Badlands, and it surprised me enough that I literally paused the episode and googled Texas Badlands, and I'm still very confused, Uh because really... What's that? Hey, Google. Hey, Google. What the fuck just happened? Why was your Google talking to you? Because I thought there was someone in your house. (laughs) Me too. That was real fear on my face. Um, (laughs) Sorry, listeners. Um, I said the G word and my uh, home mini started talking. And I I need a moment because literally like my heart is beating. (laughs) My blood went cold because I'm just I'm sitting in my room. And I just hear out my right ear a man talking. <laughs> okay. You know, and from my perspective, your face just went <laughs> like completely white. And I, I see you turn and I'm also hearing the man's voice. And I'm like, what the fuck? And then it, you realized it around the same time. That's happened to me too, because I have a, a G and then the one from Amazon that I don't want to say her name because she'll start talking to me. But, Mm -hmm. oh my god, it is the scariest thing (laughs) when they start playing. Because, like, y'all, we're wearing headphones, and so mine are, like, the full, like, over the ear. So I can't hear anything that's going on unless it's really loud. Stuff like that is terrifying because my back is to my front door, and I honestly hate my back being to doors. I I like to face them. But the way my room's set up, like, I'm facing my window, which is useless because it just looks out to someone else's uh, patio, but, or balcony. But anyway, yeah, I have some fear for you. Has your heart calmed down as I blabbed on? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Um, I forget that I can't use the G word in my house because <laughs> it'll wake him up. Um, <laughs> my God, it's like a being. <laughs> yes. But anyways... As he was describing to us, there's not a ton of information on it. There's like a movie or like a like a TV series called like Badlands Texas or something. Um, I think it's on like History Channel. I think it's about oil or something. I have no idea. Is it from but the when 80s? I googled it? I think it's like a History Channel show, like a oh. ice road truckers kind of thing. <laughs> um, the Texas Badlands. <laughs> Yeah. And then when I looked, there was an article on USA Today that was like, travel Texas. And I was like, okay, Texas Badlands. And it's describing like Big Bend National Park and like the part of West Texas that's like on the border with Mexico. That's not the same area at all. No. Like, what? (laughs) Because also, like, as someone who has been to 
the actual Badlands in the Dakotas, it's not like the Panhandle. The Panhandle is just flat nothingness forever. And the Badlands are like, I don't know, rocky and hills and the surface of the moon, definitely. But it has some like texture to it. Somewhere called the Badlands makes me feel like it's straight up out of a Stephen King novel. I know. I'm like, I wonder if they meant to say like the hinterlands, which is just like a a term for like kind of middle of nowhere, basically. But they said the Texas Badlands multiple times. So I don't know. Anyways, this takes place in the Texas Panhandle. And it's also, again, it's during the middle of a blizzard, which this area in Texas, when it gets blizzards because it's so flat... It's like 60 mile an hour winds, blinding snow. It's like a no fucking joke blizzard. Yeah. So for those of y'all who think Texas does not get snow, that's a lie. It does. I'm in Dallas and we've even gotten snow, so. Okay, but barely. Hey, it snowed when I lived in Austin. I mean, barely, but there was still snow. It hasn't snowed since I've been here, so I'm still waiting. Uh, Anyways, he's driving through the snow and it's bad. He stops at this store and there's two guys there that are in their 20s and they ask him uh, if they can have a ride. They're like hitchhiking and stuff. And he's like, no, sorry, I no. But they kind of follow him outside and when he gets outside, he realizes they have a dog with them. So it's just these two guys, their 20s with a dog, like needing a ride. And he's like, oh, fuck. He feels bad for the dog. And he's like... Okay, clear a spot and hop in. Because he's also in a van. So he's like, sure, I have the room. Let's, yeah, let's get you on the road. And they're super thankful. And they hop in the van with him and off they go. And again, it's the 1980s. And this is a small town in Texas. I think he's just like stopping here on the way. Because he's from Beaumont, which I honestly don't remember where that is. It's somewhere in Texas. But um, so he's stopping here. So it's not that crazy yet they're in the car driving and he noticed that one of them is very talkative very charming and nice and the other one seems kind of hesitant or nervous and is just kind of being quiet and he's like whatever also at this point the snow had slowed down a bit but everything was icy and jesse is just like you know what it is just too dangerous out here to keep driving so let's get in a motel so Three of them, they get a motel, they get like two rooms, so Jesse has his and they have theirs. Um, okay, They're good. next to each other. Yeah. They're not all like piling into one big old queen bed, I don't know. I was about to say, this Slumber is getting, party. it's really creepy, it's like he's getting a hotel with the hitchhikers he picked up. Yeah, well, he's feeling the same thing. So, you know, he's like, deuces, I'm going to bed, and then that night he is just like, Laying in bed, he's like, I made a mistake. I should not have picked these guys up. I know nothing about them. He even, he calls his mom uh, that night to let her know, like, about the weather and that he's safe. He didn't get caught in the blizzard too bad. But he also let her know that he picked up the hitchhikers. And she's like, I don't know. That doesn't sound like a great idea. Like, I don't know about that. He's like, yeah, so the weather's really bad. I'm in a motel. Also, mom, I fucked up. Mom, I picked up two hitchhikers. I'm, I've got to whisper because I'm sharing this wall with them. They're next door to me. Like, oh my, I'm scared for this guy because it's like, okay, number one, you did what you're not supposed to do and you picked up a hitchhiker. Like, sorry, guys, can't do that anymore. Please, please don't pick Mm-mm. up hitchhikers. Don't do it. Don't do it. 
Because, like, literally, he gets in this situation where if he were alone, he would have stopped at the motel. And so he's like, oh, fuck, well, I'm st- I'm the one driving. I'm still going to stop. And now he's like, what the fuck do I do in the morning? Like, how do I leave them here? I'm kind of stuck. Well, that's literally what he's thinking. So he gets up multiple times the night to, like, peek out the window, make sure that they didn't steal the van or anything. And then he finally, like, wakes up, wakes up at about five in the morning. And he's like... Uh, no, I'm just going to go. I'm going to leave them here at the motel. I'm going to peace out before they wake up. So he, he gets in the van and he starts it. And he's sitting there and he's like, I can't just leave them here in the middle of nowhere. Like, it's literally these two people. I've driven them like away from their town into the middle of nowhere. And I'm just going to abandon them at this motel in a blizzard. I can't do that. Yes, you so, can, dude. I know. I'm like, you absolutely can do that. It's like we all make mistakes sometimes. His mistake was picking him up in the first place. So yeah, he, he doesn't owe these people anything. I mean, I can already tell he's a really nice guy and that's why he's feeling all this guilt. But it's like, it's all right. Like, you don't owe these people anything. It's all right to just leave. Yeah, but I can totally see how that would just feel like such a dick move. I know, it But would. also, you know, it's okay to be a dick sometimes. It, you know, be a dick and be safe. So he gets out of the van and he's walking up to their door and he's like, oh my God, just please don't answer. And then it's not on me. He knocks and he's like, just be asleep. I'll be like, well, I tried. Of course, though, they answer. Yeah. And they are like, okay. So now they're back on the road. And uh, this time, the one who'd been more friendly and more talkative the day before was now also silent. So the three of them are in this van, the three of them and a dog in this van, is just silent as they're driving, which I'm like, one, turn on the radio, two, that's just uncomfortable. Like, oh, I don't like it. Yeah, no, I mean, I know it's it's great to have those people that you can share silence with. This is obviously not that type of situation. It is not. So about an hour into the drive, one of them asks um, if he can pull the car over so he can pee. And Jesse's like, okay. So the two of them get out with their dog and Jesse is staying in the van. And he's sitting there, they're peeing. He'd also, he hadn't just like pulled onto the shoulder of the highway. He'd like pulled off an exit and went down a country road a little bit. So he's a little bit away from the highway. All of a sudden, the door opens, and Jesse looks, and the guy who is talkative is now holding a hammer above his head. And Jesse just looks him in the eyes and says, oh god, please don't kill me. And that's when the man, he brings the hammer down, he strikes him multiple times, and Jesse doesn't pass out, but things kind of start to get a little fuzzy. And then the two of them are in the van, and they're kicking him. Jesse's still in the driver's seat. Yeah. So they had, I think, come in, like, on the passenger's side, like, with the hammer and then started kicking him. And he's sitting there. He's like, I'm gonna die. And he's like, you know what? Fuck it. And he floors the van and starts driving forward. And again, the two guys are in the van. Yeah. So they get knocked down, but they're, again, still there. But remember, the road is covered in snow and ice. So it's not like he got up to, you know, 70 miles an hour or whatever. He's like, okay, I'm driving. They're off me for now. I'm going to, like, action movie it, and I'm going to jump out of the moving car. 
Oh my god. And so he opens his door and tries to jump out, but he didn't realize he still had his seatbelt on. Oh no, this is where it comes into play. Which, listeners, I'm going to already tell you, don't even try to give us that stuff of like, if you don't wear your seatbelt, you can get out of the car quicker because you can also get out of the car by flying out the windshield. So That's exactly what I was saying. It's like, you will get out of the car quicker by exiting your entire body. So I have have heard that excuse from people so many times who don't wear their seatbelt. And I'm like, yeah, you'll get out of the car quicker Mm -hmm. and die. Exactly. I mean, I, um, one... Agree, always wear your seatbelt. But I also have the fear, this constant fear that I'm going to be driving and suddenly my car is going to veer into like a lake or whatever and going to start sinking, which is why in my car door, I have a pocket knife and that assuades all of my fears of that because I can cut my seatbelt off if I need to. Also, they make knives that have a little, um, like a little just tiny point at the end, which I know that sounds like just a knife, <laughs> um, but I mean like a pocket knife. And then when it's closed, there's a tiny, like not sharp little point on the end. And it's so if you hit it against glass, you can break it. So you can use it to like bust out your window and swim out. Because fun fact, if your car goes into water, you can't open your door because the water pressure. I honestly have had the same fear about the seatbelt in the lake and... I've watched way too many scary things with cars sinking in water. Um, I should probably get a knife like that with the thing at the end. You you should. It's It was like 12 bucks. But also, I then think, like, you know, I see it a lot in movies of the, like, ah, the seatbelt won't unclick. I don't think in a modern car I've ever been in a position where, like, I've not been able to and undo the seatbelt, so... I mean, is that a risk you want to take, though? I mean... No, you're right. That's Hence I the knife. again. I have the knife, but I'm just saying it's a strange fear. Anyways, so Jesse can't get out of his car because he's wearing a seatbelt. Yes, he like opened the door, tried to jump out, still has seatbelt on. And again, remember this whole time the car's moving. So when he can't jump out, the guys have like kind of recovered and they start kicking him and trying to like kick him out of the van like one of them grabs the steering wheel to steer and the other is like kicking at him out of the van again his seatbelt is still on and the car at this point is going like 30 miles an hour so finally jesse is able to unlatch his seatbelt and he jumps out of the van he lands in this snow drift and he's laying there he has a concussion broken ribs and a collapsed lung and he's laying there in the snow he's out of the car and he's like Holy shit. Again, I, I'm, I'm gonna die. And he's laying there listening. He hears the van drive off. And he's like, okay, if I can stay still and play dead, they're just, they're gonna leave me. They're gonna drive off. And then he hears the van backing up. Oh, no. Even still, he's like, okay, play dead. The van backs up and is like backing up fast. Not like uh, how more, most people would back up their car. It's like driving backwards. And they drive over his feet. But he is still just laying there. He doesn't react. He stays still. The door opens and he's like, holy shit, they're here to just finish the job or whatever. And he hears one of them going, bear, bear, where are you? And he realizes they're looking for the dog. Oh my That's God. why they came back. Yeah. They didn't come back for him. To finish him off, they came back to get the dog. Another thing that shows how just sweet of a person Jesse is, he's laying there after being attacked by this guy, dying in the snow, and his thoughts turn to the dog, and he's like, 
uh, I hope they they find the dog. I don't I don't want that dog to just die out here in the snow while he is dying out there in the snow. Yeah, so say while that's exactly what's happening to him. But he's like, I don't I, I don't want the dog to die in this blizzard. The two men they find the dog. They all get back in the van and it drives away. And Jesse is left there just to die in the blizzard. So he waits until he's positive they're gone. And he tries to get up. And he realizes he has the other injuries. The concussion, broken ribs, and collapsed lung. But he realizes his arm is out of socket. And that his ribs had been crushed inwards to the point that they're pressing on his heart. And he can feel his heartbeat in his bones. Oh my god. And mind you, his head was bashed in by a hammer. Yeah. So it's not like he has a bump on the head. Oh yeah, he's covered in blood. I mean, he's dying. And he realizes that if he closes his eyes, he's not going to wake up. And he said that's when just the realization hit him that he was like, I'm not supposed to die. He's like, I'm not going to. And so he somehow stands up in the snow, which I don't know how, because not only these other injuries, remember, they drove over his feet. That's what I was just thinking. Like, how is he standing on anything? And also every movement he makes... He can feel his heart beating in his bones. And that is one of the creepiest statements. That is some Edgar Allan Poe shit. Yeah. I uh, literally don't understand. And it did go into it. So I'm like, well, all right. But he stands up. His shoes are gone somewhere. Probably the car took them when it ran over him. So question. Do your bones themselves have nerves or is it just the nerves around them? So like when you break your arm, for example, and it hurts a lot, is it just because of like the skin and muscle or is it like, can you feel your bones? Both. So yeah, you have nerves in your bones. And then like when you break your arm, it hurts because you broke the bone and all the muscle and the skin, like all of that hurts. And it's kind of the same way that you can like bruise a rib and it fucking hurts because of the nerves in your bones oh wait that was a dumb question because your teeth are like bone and they have nerves oh i actually didn't think about that teeth are weird teeth are. i don't even like thinking about teeth that much because it's like hmm i have bones sticking out of my body at all times have you ever seen a child's skull uh, I mean, we've done like, what, 92 episodes, 93 episodes of this podcast? Yes. But um, thanks for that flashback of horror. I know. I know you meant like dental x-rays. Um, and yes, all no, of the above. I'm not talking about oh. dental x-rays. I'm talking about when you see the skull. So say it's a young child that's maybe like nine. I don't know. How old are you when you start losing teeth? We'll say you don't lose teeth until you're like, I don't know, 10. I have no idea. I can't remember. But basically, when you have all your baby teeth still in and your permanent teeth, when there's the skull, there are two rows of teeth. And like the permanent teeth are up like, but like it's scarier seeing an actual skull and not just the x-ray. Doesn't look real. It looks alien. And I know it's one of those things where, like, obviously your permanent teeth are in your face, but seeing it, it's creepy. I'm just saying. Look up a picture. Yeah, no. Teeth are one of those things that just freak me out way more than they should. Like, I think one of my fear images that's not a real thing, but people, for some fucking reason, decide to always Photoshop it. I hate you, Brittany. I'm sure Brittany just pulled picture. up a picture, and I don't like- I told you it was scarier than an x-ray. No, and I'm literally going into how teeth are, like, one of my greatest fears, and you're 
apparently just playing right into it. But you know the photos that people will Photoshop of, like, teeth growing out of, like, hands or feet and stuff? That shit scares the fuck out of me. Oh, my God. And I hate so much. I hate that a lot. I'm going to go back into my case, which somehow, I don't know, is better than that that you're showing me. Don't think I've ever said that about any case ever. But here we are. I need, you know what? No, I'm going to drink some more wine. I need it after. uh. Anyways, his teeth are fine, but he somehow stands up. Again, his shoes have been knocked off somehow, and his glasses are gone. And he is one of the people who, without his glasses, he is, like, basically blind. Yeah. So he's like, okay, I have to somehow make it back to the highway, blind, dying, and in a blizzard. Because no one will find me on this, like, little country access road off the highway. So he starts walking on the feet that had been run over. And he is struggling to walk. He's struggling to stay conscious. But he makes it to the highway. And I'm assuming this is, like, I-40, the main interstate that goes through the Texas Panhandle. Um, because yeah. there, even though there's a blizzard happening, there are cars on it. And he is on the edge of the highway. He raises his hands to try to stop passing cars, but nobody's stopping. And, I mean, as much as I'm like, holy shit, how could none of these people stop? We literally, the first half of my case, talked about don't pick up hitchhikers. And not only that, he looks like a monster. I mean, he is broken and bruised and bleeding and on the side of the highway. So I'm like, uh... I mean, I hate that no one stopped, but I don't know if I would. Um, And this is also 1983, so it's not like anyone is driving past and calling the police on their phone. Right. Oh, God, that's true. Because, like, nowadays, if I were to see this, then, yeah, I mean, I would obviously call 911 immediately. But I I think I'd be too scared Mm -hmm. to stop. Yeah. And in the middle of, in the Texas panhandle, even on the interstate, it's the middle of nowhere. You might drive for an hour before you come up to a town that has gas stations or stores and stuff that you could like stop in and get make a phone call so again he is standing on the side of the road he is struggling to breathe he's bleeding air everywhere and he knows that he's about to die yeah and so he's like hopeless like all hope is lost and suddenly this truck shows up and he's like this this truck has to see me and It's unclear if the truck stopped or drove by, but right after an ambulance was there. Just from how the structure of the story was, I think the semi-truck driver drove by slowly and, like, didn't stop, but, like, on the radio had called an ambulance or maybe a truck driver from earlier called an ambulance and this truck driver was like, see radio with the ambulance like yes i see him he's right here oh my god which wife's going slowly i don't know yeah so i don't know exactly like how it happened but an ambulance was right there just after the truck and he was saved he was taken into surgery and he was in the icu for six days and the doctors told him that if he hadn't been in such good physical condition he absolutely would be dead yeah So I guess he was healthy, ripped, probably. This is in the 80s, so when he was talking in the episode, he was kind of old. But he survived. And the local police, because again, tiny-ass towns, they did not have much to go on 
And so the case was not going anywhere, and they reached out for help from the Texas Rangers, which is the Texas State Police. And and the baseball maybe team. this is embarrassing. Yeah, maybe this is embarrassing. <laughs> but I didn't realize until like maybe two years ago. So in my mid twenties, that the Texas Rangers baseball team is named after the state police. Like I've always heard Texas Rangers. I was like, hmm, baseball team. And I also, again, have only lived in Texas for a couple of years, but I don't think it was until we started this podcast and doing my research when it's like, then the Texas Rangers stepped in. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> what? <laughs> because like, me what reading the that the first is time. What Nolan Ryan doing at this crime scene? <laughs> yes. Me reading that is if you were reading something and it's like, and the San Francisco 49ers stepped in and solved the case. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Oh my God. To be in your head in that moment, just the confusion and the like, this is a really, this case is crazier than I thought it was. The I baseball mean, it was team crazy, helped solve it. And, then, and the way it was written is like, everyone expected this. They're like, oh, awesome. Yeah. The investigators with the Texas rain. I'm like, what the <laughs> shit? And then so quickly I realized the Texas Rangers is what they call, like, the Texas State Police. But there we go. It's like the... So, uh, the Texas Rangers stepped in. It's like the, the the mountain police, but they're mounted in Canada. Yes. <laughs> Except I think yours is funnier, to be honest. Well, I mean, it was... Because, like, in Oklahoma, it's the Oklahoma State Police. And, like, <laughs> every other state, it's just the state police. And not not here. Well, you'd... even still, like even to today, when I picture the Texas Rangers, I'm not picturing like state police. I'm picturing like <laughs> some cowboy shit. They're always on horses. And yes. Which, what is so funny? But... I mean, a lot of them are, though. There are still lots of police yeah. officers that ride horses in Texas. But like not everywhere. It's not like you'd be like driving down 35 and there's like a horse running next to you. I don't know. Galloping. They don't run. They gallop. I mean... But it's not not like that <laughs> in the same way. <laughs> Texas is weird, y'all. I will say, I say all that, and if I did happen to see a horse on I-35, I would not be surprised. I'd be like, oh, that's funny. Yeah, there is no part of me. I'd just be like, okay, and then get in the other lane. <laughs> <laughs> I would be mildly annoyed and then forget about it 10 seconds later. <laughs> get mildly annoyed because it's like oh they're using fucking arm signals because they have no turn signal because it's a live animal yeah i have been stuck on the highway behind a horse once but it was i think i was in iowa and we were in amish country and we literally got stuck behind a horse-drawn carriage and buggy or whatever it's called yeah, the buggy and i was like oh my god this is <laughs> actually something people do and then we stopped and we bought like some bread baskets from them and i still have it it's amazing i'm telling y'all if y'all ever are in this is an absolute huge sidebar but if you're ever in like iowa or pennsylvania or areas with like a large amish population and you see their um stands and stuff outside of the road where they're selling some of their handmade goods first off best quality ever second off some of the nicest people you will ever talk to and one really awesome thing about it is they at least on mine and i know this is something that's fairly common write their address and like all their information on the bottom so that if you want more you mail them a letter they send you like an order form or whatever that they write out 
and then you like mail back your money and stuff and they will sh- mail you what i want it. one and i'm like it's awesome i want one let's use your address or the address on let's yours do it. because i would love to order I one mean, from them talk about support yeah, the small it, community i mean that's exactly what i was about to say is it's literally like at its core the perfect definition like small business and supporting them so i'm like fuck yeah and it was like 10 or 12 bucks for this like gorgeous hand woven like it's like a wood and reed bread box i know i love your i know exactly what your basket is like so like dead serious please write them a letter and get me an order form thank you oh i will but i don't i don't actually know how we got on this oh texas rangers that's where i'll pick back up so the texas rangers step in the state police not the baseball team and they are able to actually put real resources into this. And they found out that one of the attackers had escaped prison in California. Oh, shit. So they're doing their investigation, doing all that. And finally, the two attackers are found and captured in North Carolina. It's over 1,400 miles from Pampa, which is another reason why I think they were on I-40. Because I think I-40 goes straight to North Carolina. I think it's North Carolina to California is I-40. I think it goes across the whole nation, yeah. But they were caught, and they were Richard Vaught and Kendall Novelli. So Richard was sentenced to 15 years in prison for attempted murder, and then Kendall, who was the one that had attacked Jesse with the hammer, he was sentenced to 30 years in prison for attempted murder. And Jesse said that he survived because there was just something else that he was supposed to do, and he hadn't done it yet. So today, Jesse is a victim rights advocate and is a volunteer with Bridges to Life. And that is a prison rehabilitation program that was founded when this episode aired 10 years ago, so in the, like, 1999, uh, by John Sage, John Sage's sister, Marilyn, had been brutally murdered, and so he started this Bridges to Life prison rehab program in her memory. And Jesse volunteers for it, and the program brings victims of crime into prisons to counsel inmates so that the people that do these crimes can better understand just the effects of what they did on their victims and on society as a whole. That's amazing. I didn't know about that program. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of this program, but I mean, that's, to me, that's so incredible and has such a huge impact. It does. But that is the case of the survival of Jesse. That one's insane because it goes in so many different directions. We're like, they're in the hotel. And so I was like, okay, did they attack him in the hotel? Like, where's this going? And the fact that Mm -hmm. they came back not to kill him, but to get the dog. And it's like, he's laying there like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. I have. I still have to pretend to be dead anyway. And the fact that he was able to... I still don't understand how he walked on his feet. Don't understand that I one at no all. I have no idea. And I am so glad. Like, I really think it was... It had to have been the truckers and their radios. Because thank, yeah. thank God for that. Because you're right. Like, cell phones were not a thing. Thank God CB radio was. Or CB... It's not CBD. It's like a CB yeah, radio. Yeah, CB radio. Yeah. Yeah, I... I mean, I definitely, without the truckers, he would have died on the side of the highway. He would have. But yeah, that is my case of survival. Tell me about yours. All right. Well, I'm going to get into my case. So mine is the survival of Anita Wooldridge. And the sources I used, also an episode of I Survived, Season 6, Episode 9. It's from like 2011. And then an article from the Kokomo Perspective by Patrick Munzi. 
and an article from Monsters and Critics by Angelica Sumter, and she was reviewing a show that was on um, Investigation Discovery. All right. So back in June 1998, Anita was 21 years old and she was living with her parents. She had just graduated from college, so she went back home trying to figure out what's next, and she had the afternoon shift at the post office where she currently worked. So in the morning of June 25th, her mom like comes in her room to wake her up before she leaves for work, and she's basically like, Anita, get out of bed, like, you need to do something with your day. Do not just be lazy. Please get up. And so her mom goes to work and her dad goes to work and Anita goes back to sleep. Same. We, we like, all did that. Okay, like, mom, mom, you're totally right. I should totally, you know, I'm gonna, I don't know. But also, like, what? I wake up five hours before work starts. What, what do you, I'll watch TV. I, like, I know. What do you want me to do? She's literally like, cool. I'm gonna go back to bed. I have the afternoon shift. No, I'm not getting up at seven. So by 10 o'clock, Both of her parents were at work. So then she's like laying in bed and she hears the phone start ringing and someone's knocking on the door. And so she's like really groggy and she's like, oh, what the fuck? And so she goes and she answers the door and it's this guy, Victor Steele. And he was a member at a gym that she worked at previously. So she knew who he was. And he was the, you know, the kind of guy that was like a loner. He kind of kept to himself. And he would treat all the women that he would see there at the gym like he was interested in them because you could tell he just really wanted a girlfriend. Okay. But this particular gym had closed in 1997, which is why she no longer worked there. And so she hadn't seen him since then. Uh, Also, don't hit on people when they're at the gym. Oh, God. It's so annoying. Like, the last thing I want to do at the gym is talk to anyone. Like, leave me alone. I'm working out. I'm rarely at the gym anyway. Literally, the only time you should talk to someone at the gym is if they're doing a thing and you're like, oh shit, you're going to hurt yourself. And like, you actually know they are. You know, if you're like, oh, that's too much weight for you, little lady, like, go fuck yourself. (laughs) She's going to MMA throw you into the wall. But if like someone's, I don't know, using a machine and you're like, oh, actually, that's dangerous. You know, being like, oh, hey, just want to let you know this and then leave them alone. Yeah. Uh, anything above that or anything other than like someone's dire safety, leave them the fuck alone in the gym. They don't want to talk to you. They're sweaty. They're either listening to a podcast or watching a show or music or just in their own fucking space. Don't talk to them. Leave them alone. And also don't show up at their fucking house. I mean, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> There's that too. Um, Yeah, for me, talking to people at the gym would be like, are you done with that machine? Don't really think I've ever said anything else. Yeah. So Victor's at her door and she's like, kind of again she's groggy she literally rolled out of bed to come open the door and she's really confused as to why he's even there and he asks her for a glass of water it was really hot out that day and he'd been riding his bike and so she says like sure like i'll come on in i'll get you some water and it never really dawned on her like why the fuck he was at her house asking for a glass of water oh god so in her stumble to the front door to answer it She'd actually stepped on a tack, which, ouch. And Oh, fuck. <laughs> I know. And she still answered the door? Yeah. I would be like, you know what? I'm outie. Knock away. Let me go, like, bandage my foot. Yeah. Side note, my friend and I have been watching a lot of Fear Factor recently. Don't ask why. I've never really watched it. It's a lot. And usually most of the challenges, I'm like, okay, whatever. They had one in this episode we just watched where it was like, 
oh, you throw a rock through a window that has different numbers on it, and that's how many feet you have to walk on broken glass barefoot. And I was like, literally, the two of us during this entire thing were like, how, like, that's not even a fear thing, that's just a safety thing. Like, literally, how do you walk on eight feet of broken glass? You're going to slice your foot up. And even if this glass is somehow sanitized, the bottoms of your feet are not. Like, that's infection. And I'm like... I guess maybe it was like studio, like movie glass where it's fake, but I don't think so. And it it was, uh, uh, no, absolutely not. And stepping on a tack, oh fuck no, I would not have answered the door. Especially groggy stepping on a tack. I'd be like, uh, oh my <laughs> god, what the fuck. I find it hilarious that you're watching a ton of Fear Factor now because I watched that like as a kid and I am sure they had to get a tetanus shot. I'm sure any episode of that show you're on, there's like a series of shots you have to get before you can do it. Okay, so like I was saying, I'm just gonna, you know, Anita stepped on attack. So like she bends down to clean up the blood. There was, you know, a little bit of blood because she stuck herself with a fucking tack and then suddenly she feels this shock and this electrical current in her back. So she starts to panic and then Victor hits her again and she starts fighting back. He then like reaches around her and this is when she sees that he has a stun gun and that's when he hits her a third time. And she loses control of her legs and she just collapses to the ground. Oh my god, he stun gunned her and she was like, ouch, what's that? She's strong Mm. to like stun gun once and not completely collapse. Yeah, because this is a stun gun, not a taser. He then puts her, his knee like in her back and he starts to tie her up with zip ties. He takes her hands and puts them behind her back and um, he ties up her feet as well. And then he started talking to her, to her saying that he was going to rob her because he needed the money. And he's starting to ask her about the information of her bank account. Like, where's your debit card? What's your PIN number? He then pulls out a handgun and he shows it to her and shows her that it's loaded. And he's like, do whatever I say or I'll, I'm going to use this. And she notices that he is shaking this entire time. And so she immediately is like, Victor, I believe you. I will get you the money, um, but can you can you please put the gun away? Because she's seeing him shaking. She saw that it's loaded. And so she was worried that he was accidentally going to fire it and kill her. That, that she was going to yeah. be shot, not on purpose, but because he was clearly wigging out. Yeah, I mean, if he's shaking, he is, like, nervous about this. Like, I don't know. That just makes him so much more unpredictable. I mean, already she doesn't know him, and he's unpredictable in that way. But him being nervous? Yeah. So he is in, like, where's your purse? She points to it. He goes over to steal her money. And she's thinking, okay, this is fine. This is almost over. But then he comes back, and he says, you need to come with me. And she's like, oh, fuck. So he forces Anita into the trunk of her own car. Because remember, he rode his fucking bicycle. He didn't have a car. So he puts her in the trunk Uh. of her own car and drives off. And it was over 100 degrees on that day. And so she's sweating and she's in the trunk and she's like, okay, I need to get my energy back up. Like, I, I need to conserve my energy. I've got to be able to just have some strength. Oh, my God. By the way... If you're ever in a situation where you're put into the trunk of a car, first off, nowadays all cars come standard with a glow-in-the-dark little uh, latch handle, 
that you can pull and it will open the trunk. So if you're being driven somewhere, you can open it on the highway, people will see you. If you're in an older car or if you're scared that they're going to notice the trunk opening, you can also like push out the taillight and like stick your hand out and wave something or wave your hand for the drivers behind you to notice. Safety tips, because that's, again, one of my greatest fears, and I have researched it a lot. I also have so much shit in my trunk that if a kidnapper was like, I want to put you in the trunk, I'd be like, Where? Well, it's going to take like 30 minutes for us to clean this out, so if you <laughs> untie me, we can like load it, unload it together, but I'm a messy bitch. Well, and I know you totally still have stuff in your trunk from when you like moved to your new place. You've been there for uh, a year now, but that was not, that's not where the story's going because at the time that she's like, I need to keep my strength up. That's about when she hears the car pull off onto a gravel road and then she hears (sighs) a garage door opening and the car drives in and then she hears it close. Mm -mm. So then she is panicking because she thinks that he has just left her in this trunk in the garage to die. He, like, went inside. And then a little bit later, he comes back out, opens the trunk, and that's when he tells her, hey, the goal was not to rob you. He was telling her, the truth is, I have sexual needs, and he was going to use her to fulfill them. Oh, my God. Buy a fucking toy. I know. This dude is so fucked up. Get ready to get really, really frustrated and mad at him. I'm already... Let me... You know what? Let me just pour all of my wine into my glass here because I'm going to need it. Oh, there it goes. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say... All right. Well, you know... You may as well fill it up to the rim. (laughs) And you did. Basically Um, is. So, trigger warning for those... You know, like I said, he has his sexual needs. So, want to do a trigger warning right now for the rest of my case. I hate the sexual needs excuse and oh, I know. shit because we see it all the time. And it's like, oh my god, go fucking masturbate. I know. I'll be like, dude, that's what your hand is for. Also, like, no one has sexual needs. No. Like. They're once. They're once. And like, you know, you're in a consenting relationship and all that. And it's like, you know what? Let's go. And awesome. Consenting. If you have these quote unquote needs, which you don't, and you're single, masturbate or like consensually hook up with someone. How is that hard? I don't know. I am at a loss. Obviously not a loss for words, but at a loss. I know. I agree with everything you just said. And with her hands still bound, uh, he lifted her into his lap and he had her start kissing him. And he was a dude of about like 5'10". He was overweight. And she kept describing these beady eyes that he had and that he was just kind of dirty. This next statement, when she said it, I was like, oh my God, I hate so much how this is interwoven into women today. But she said being female rape had always been something that she had feared feared happening to her and she even said that like before this torture she had thought she would rather be killed than raped but when it actually came to it she was like no i'm gonna do whatever it takes because i don't want to i don't want to die i want to live that's powerful it's extremely powerful and the fact that she said this is a fear she'd always had i'm like oh my god you were 21 years old and this is a fear that was always there because of yeah fucking society today i know for me growing up as a man like it was never a fear growing up until it became a reality and actually happened and then from then like nowadays it is a fear and it is something i recognize but growing up in your youth in your like formative years with that being the reality and the reality that faces so many 
women growing up today is, uh, that's horrifying. It is. And I mean, thank you for being comfortable enough to share your experience. Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, you're you, yourself, are a survivor. And, you know, it's one of those things that we often talk about rape and talk about how it affects women, but it affects men too. Like men can be victims. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I think absolutely can happen to anyone and can happen by anyone. But I think it is also important to remember, I mean, it does so much disproportionately affect women. And yeah. in this, the same fucking sexist patriarchy shit that makes it a reality and victim shames uh, women in tells them like, oh, well, what were you wearing? What were you drinking? Mm. I mean, is the same toxic masculinity bullshit that makes male victims feel like, oh, I, I, I can't say anything about this. Or if you're a, a heterosexual man who's raped by a woman, it's like, oh, I should, I'm expected to be like, oh, I enjoyed it. Or like what? And it's like, no, any time you're forced to have sex against your will. That's not okay. That's not fucking okay. Yeah. And you should feel empowered to tell someone or go to the police and not face repercussions. And it's just so fucked up that this sexist bullshit fucking patriarchy makes that not a reality for so many victims. I know. More often than not, a victim will never come forward because of the fear Mm -hmm. of repercussion or the fear of blame that it was their fault yeah and like taking this back to the beginning of our episode when i was talking about that ted bundy documentary one of the victims who survived came forward and she was sexually assaulted very brutally and she was saying how she never spoke up before like publicly about what happened to her because she never wanted to be a victim she wanted to be a mother she wanted to be who she was she wanted to continue her continue Mm -hmm. her life and never be seen as a victim and it's so heartbreaking that that's the type of decision people are making when they're dealing with sexual assault because they're like well if i say anything you know i'll be blamed they won't believe me or this is going to follow me around forever and so they feel it's easier to just keep that inside and it just, it's, I don't even know how to, to close that because it it breaks my heart that those are the decisions mm-hmm. people are faced with in these situations. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the decision of will this define me? And obviously you want the answer to be no, but does saying no uh, in your case mean like not telling anyone or internalizing it? I mean, it's such a fucking horrible situation, but I mean, literally just fuck the patriarchy. So Victor told Anita if she did not comply with whatever he wanted, and again, like, fucking toxic masculinity for the rest of my case. He said- Great. Uh, yeah. He said he would kill her, and he would find someone else. And so she complied. And the reason she complied is because she didn't want two families to be hurting. She was thinking about the future possible victim. I- I'm just beyond astonished with her willpower and her thought process. And like, this is going to go into like how she fucking survived. So just know this is an extremely terrifying story, but it has a positive outcome in the very end. He raped her repeatedly in the garage. And then he starts packing because he was going to take her somewhere else. For this, he let her sit in the front seat, but her hands and feet were still tied and bound. 
And he drove down country roads, avoided the interstate. So, you know, she couldn't do anything like bang on the window, like make gestures that shows that she's been kidnapped. Yeah, she can't like alert other drivers because there's no passing cars and shit. And another reason why they're on the country roads. And so like the whole way, she's, of course, thinking about escape plans. And he tells her that they are headed to Wisconsin, which was two states away from her home of Indiana, which I don't think I said that at the beginning, but she's in Kokomo, Indiana. Oh, that would make a sense why one of your sources was like the Kokomo Register or whatever it was. Yeah, I think that's why I didn't say that because I just said that. Sorry, guys, it's in Indiana, but they're driving to Wisconsin. So on the way there... He told her that he wanted her to forget about her family and fall in love with him. Yeah. Okay, dude. Because that's just a decision someone can make. Like, you know what? Okay. You know what? We'll do. Noted. Yeah. Fuck this guy. Wow. I know. So they drove for about 10 hours and they ended up at a place that he had rented that he was going to open up as a used bookstore. But at this current point in time, it was this dilapidated building and that's where he took her inside. Who the fuck is this guy? Victor Steele, which is one of the things that like we knew exactly who he was like up front, which is not something you normally hear in an I Survived episode. And that's because this one, this is, I will say, one of the first cases I was able to find a lot of information outside of the episode and like supplement my read. Like it just because normally in the I Survived episodes, you don't know exactly who the woman is. And I think they do that a lot for the protection of the people, like the woman and the men who are Mm -hmm. survivors. They never say their last names on the show, but I was able to easily find information on this. And towards the end, you'll understand why. So they go inside this dilapidated building and that's where Anita sees this three by five metal cabinet that's laying on the ground. So like it's not upright where the doors would swing out. It's laying on its back where the doors like kind of are pulled open. That's a big ass cabinet. It's the size of like a wardrobe cabinet, like an armoire. So he points to the metal cabinet and he tells her that that would be her bed and that she needed to get inside. So he takes off the zip ties She climbs in and he shut the doors and she hears him doing something on the top, like with the doors, uh, locking it in some way, keeping her inside this metal wardrobe. And what's really astonishing is she actually felt safe and she had this moment of relief inside this metal cabinet because she was away from him. And so this box became her safe haven. Because that's where she was without him. Which is one of the absolute most horrifying things for something that you're literally locked into and trapped to become your safe haven. Yeah. The morning after they'd gotten to Wisconsin, he took her out of the box and he raped her again. And then he asked her to start playing some games with him and to watch TV. The types of things that a, a normal couple would maybe do together. Then he would rape her again put her back in the box, and this process just repeated itself over and over. He would then offer her dinner, you know, they'd watch TV, watch a movie, then he'd rape her again, and then lock her in the box for the night. So on the second full day, same routine. And throughout all of this, they played a lot of board games and a lot of card games. And so she would play as many games as he wanted. She would watch as many movies as he wanted. And she would act very interested in these activities because it was that or he was going to rape her. She knew this is a balancing act in like every way, shape and form. So 
she couldn't lose all the time, the games. You know, she couldn't, like, let him win every single time. So she would have to win every once in a while to where he would think that they're genuinely playing these games because she didn't want him to know that she was totally playing him to, like, protect herself from being raped again. This just reminds me of a case you did quite a while ago, Mm -hmm. 40 or 50 episodes of the woman who, what I remember specifically from it is she is like in bed with him and is calling the police and is like whispering and she's like, I can't get out of bed. I can't go. And the police show up. That is just, to me, the case that keeps popping into my mind. And I'm horrified. I've done a couple of cases that have this similar thread. And one of the ones that's the biggest connection that that I got when I was reading this was Colleen Stan. She was the victim that was kept in a box by Cameron Hooker under the bed from 1977 Mm -hmm. until 1984. Um, And if you're interested in that, that case, I did it in episode 62. And I keep getting vibes of that. The fact that there was another fucking victim who was lost in a box of some type is very difficult for me to understand because how more than one person could come up with that fucked up situation of torture i don't even know uh same i mean when you mentioned the uh the metal like filing cabinet that became her sanctuary i immediately thought of colleen who was also placed in the box and holy shit i know Like I said, she is playing this game of these games and trying to balance her torturous situation. And while they were playing the games, he he would tell her like how much he was enjoying it. And, you know, they were having such a great time, basically trying to convince her that they could be happy together. Like this could be it. And she felt like this was going to go on this day to day routine until he fully gained her trust. She escaped. Or the police found her. Those were the only three options she saw. She was like, he's going to keep locking me up and raping me and making me play these games until he trusts me or I get out of here or I'm rescued. But through all of this, she was always okay to go back to the box because that was where she felt safe because he couldn't touch her. The third day was another of the same Every single day, she thought it could be the day that she was going to die because she knew that he could snap at any minute. And she had this feeling of if I become useless to him or he gets tired of me, he's going to dispose of me. So she was held prisoner for seven days. He would threaten her with death if she tried to escape or if she tried to make noise. Even when she was locked in the box, he would walk around making fake noises or play tapes to make it sound like other people were there. And if she tried to get out or make noise, he said he'd kill her. So she had all these plans and like ideas of how she could get out of this box, how she could escape. But this fear that he had instilled in her that he would kill her if she tried to do anything or screamed or any of that. She was worried if she tried to escape, she'd get it open and he would be sitting right there on the other side waiting for her because it was all a test. And then he'd kill her for trying to escape. So she was terrified to do anything. So on the eighth day of her captivity, which happened to be on July 2nd, he opens the box, lets her go to the bathroom, and then he rapes her. This was their morning routine. He then put her back inside the box because he had to run an errand to go buy some lumber. And so while she's in the box, she starts hearing these noises, like someone's banging on the door, but she's pretty sure it's just him. You know, he probably never left. And then she hears the door get kicked in and there's yelling, police, search warrant. 
But she doesn't say anything because, again, like she has this fear and it really just sounded like a TV show. Like this is he could have just turned the TV up really loud or there's a tape playing. So this to her was another test. She's not going to say a fucking word. And then she hears first room clear. And then that's when she's like, okay, fuck, maybe this is real. Maybe they're going to leave and they're not going to find me. So she's like panicking at this point, but she's still silent. And then she hears that they're in the same room, but she's still, she's not saying anything. The doors of the metal box were opened and there were five police officers in SWAT gear. And one of them just scooped her up and rescued her. And so it, it was finally over. Holy shit. When she was found, she had stun gun markings on her stomach and her back and her face was bruised and purple. The police that found her were actually from her hometown of Kokomo, Indiana. They immediately called an ambulance for her. When the ambulance got there and they took her up, you know, she was crying and hyperventilating. And they were like, it's okay, you're safe. And she was like, I I haven't cried in eight days. And so, like, everything was hitting her. Because she had been so focused that, like, crying, that, that wasn't an option. She had to survive. And the whole reason that Anita was found, because again, she is 10 hours away from where she lives and her local police are who found her. Her neighbor had actually seen Victor Steele at her house in Indiana eight days earlier. The FBI placed Victor Steele's mother under surveillance. And so when he phoned her, that's how they were able to find his exact location there in Wisconsin. Victor Steele had become a suspect early on. He actually had a prior conviction for rape and false imprisonment. So this was not the first time he had done something like this. He was charged with kidnapping, carjacking, illegal possession of a firearm. During the trial, he decided that he was going to represent himself. And because... That's fucking stupid. It's always so stupid. He's a dumbass. Don't represent yourself. No. Even if you're a lawyer. Because of this, he was allowed to question her. So he puts her on the witness stand. And he tried to make it sound like it was absolutely impossible that he could have done it. His defense was that she was in with the police and the FBI because she hated him. So, like, literally this guy has no fucking defense. He's making up shit. And everyone knows it. Hold on. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. He's saying, like, he's up there questioning her and he's like, how could I have kidnapped you and raped you and held you hostage for over a week? Because you're in cahoots with the police and the FBI because you hate me. I mean, it's documented. She was found in Wisconsin eight days later in the used bookstore he owns. Like, how is, is he trying to argue that like, oh, When I was running errands, the police and FBI must have, like, gone with her, and she got into this cabinet, and then, like, framed... What the... That's fucking stupid. It's so stupid, and it's no defense. It's not a legit defense. And so there was a five-day trial, and the jury deliberated for three hours before finding him guilty of all of the charges. So Victor Steele was sentenced to life plus 25 years in prison with no chance of parole. And the judge, when she was giving the sentence, said it was one of the worst crimes that she has ever dealt with. Anita is so fucking strong that it just 
I admire her because she was able to use her mind. She kept calm. She kept him calm. Because remember I told you at the beginning, he was so nervous. And she knew that she had to keep him calm so he didn't do anything stupid. Because her life was on the line. At any moment, he could snap. And so her abduction and rescue, it's actually still used as a case study to train FBI agents. And in 2009, she released a tell-all book called Eight Days in Darkness. And this is a book that she co-wrote with her therapist. And part of it, um, so her therapist, Angela Rogner, she had Anita write down things in a journal. So a lot of this book was written, like, through her therapy. And they ended up turning it into a book. And the point of it was to provide help to victims of sexual abuse while also bringing her closure in her own life. I am literally, I need that book. And it's it's Eight Days in Darkness. Eight Days in Darkness the title. by Anita Woldridge. In addition to her writing this fantastic book that tells her story, she's also, like, this case has also been featured, obviously, on I Survived, which is where I saw it. There's also an Investigation Discovery documentary about it, and the Discovery Channel has a show called The FBI Files, and they covered this case as well. And like I said, it's eerily similar to the case of Colleen Stan, and still, when I was watching this episode and she mentioned the box, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? This has happened more than once. Like, there's more than one fucked up mind that thinks you should lock someone in a tiny confined space, but apparently so. That's the story of Anita Woldridge and her survival. And, you know, she said her faith brought her through a lot of it. You know, when she was in the box, she would pray and just like, I'm so impressed with how she was able to keep such a clear head during such a traumatic and chaotic event. The fact that the first time she cried was when she was in the ambulance and it was just like, she finally broke and like let her emotions take the best of her. But I admit I would not be that strong. I'd be crying in that box, freaking out, hyperventilating, hyperventilating. I would probably nearly make myself pass out from hyperventilation being in that small of a closed space. Uh, yeah. And just knowing what's, what's I, happening to me. Yeah. I cannot imagine going through all of this. And I, she is so incredibly strong. And her tenacity, her will to live, and her drive to survive is unmatched it's phenomenal so anita badass i mean anita deserves applause absolutely that was me clapping but trying not to be too loud (laughs) because this is a recording i don't know what it's gonna sound like well do you want to hop into postmortem i guess i absolutely i think in this episode definitely you brought the more intense case mine was very intense but mine was very intense i think mostly on a physical level Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, the fact that the doctor even said, yo, if you weren't in such great shape, you would not have survived this. And there was a lot of physical trauma, uh, a lot that Jesse had to go through on that level. And there definitely was a psychological element to a lot of it. But your case was so much of both. It had the physical trauma so much with the psychological trauma. And I think both aspects of that, the torture she went through, and especially the length of time that uh, she was held hostage and she was being just attacked and going through such horrifying conditions. I absolutely think that your case was the most intense of this episode. 
I mean, I I have to 100% agree. Jesse's story of survival is horrifying. I mean, the fact that he was literally left in the middle of nowhere, essentially, and just had to somehow pick himself up on two feet that had been run over and get to the highway to find help. In the middle of a blizzard. Uh, Yes, in the middle of a blizzard. So, like, everything's against him and he survived. But Anita's ability to stay calm is something that... I am beyond impressed with and I think it just ups the intensity because she is one of those people that she is in the worst situation of her life and she was doing everything she could to get out of it and like I honestly think I would have moments of severe weakness and breaking down and just accepting that this is the end she wasn't like that she was like no. I mean, yes, she was afraid that any day she could die, but she was doing everything she could against that. Well, and I think that expectation and acceptance of like, this is death, this is the end, would be so expected. I I exactly, I feel the same. I absolutely don't think I have the strength that Anita had and that fight that she did. So I am totally on the same page. All right, well, you can totally pick the topic next week and let me know what it is. Oh, I will. Well. Those were a couple of two very intense but very amazing cases. I mean, God, survival cases are just, I love the light at the end of the tunnel kind of thing. Me too. It's a horrifying journey all the way there, but you know that the person wasn't murdered. Exactly. I mean, it even just going in as horrifying as it is, There's a grain of hope that is always going to be there at the end because of the survival. And I just, I really, I love that. And if y'all loved this episode as well, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. Let us know what you liked. We love hearing y'all's reviews. And we just, we love hearing everything y'all have to say. Yes, and while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can find every wine that we do. You can find pictures of our beautiful faces. You can have conversations with us. So just be sure to like and follow us and check it out. Absolutely. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.